0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Our Next Guest Is. Hello and welcome to another Our Next Guest Is. This is a conversation where we meet the country's leading speakers in the corporate and events world and we meet the person behind the name. Now my name is Michael Pope and I'm here with Carson White from Leading Voice. So Carson, your turn, who is our
1: next guest? Our next guest is a multi-award winning speaker, trend forecaster and best-selling author of nine books. He's helped some of the world's most successful brands navigate disruption and maintain momentum. Regularly appearing as a commentator on TV and radio, he is a familiar face on the international conference circuit as well, having shared the stage with Bill Gates, Dr. John Maxwell and Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak. We are very happy to have him join us today as he gazes into his crystal ball to exclusively reveal to us the next great global trend. Our next guest is Michael McQueen. How are you both? I feel like I'm on a game show.
2: That was such a <laughs> such an impressive intro. Thank you so much. It's great to be able to spend a couple of minutes and
1: and chat. Nice. To oh, well, be that's our uh, that's our other podcast. Uh our next guest <laughs> is uh, the game show. That's 2023. right. 2023. Yeah.
0: That's right. Now, Michael, you are, as Carson said, a trend forecaster. So, a big question to start off: yep. Will the cummerbund that I wore in my wedding in nineteen eighty-eight ever make a comeback?
2: Oh, has it gone out though? This is the question. <laughs> I bet in the right in the right moment, the right occasion, that thing would probably still turn heads. Whether it turned heads for the right reasons, I'm not. So <laughs> sure. But um, I remember cummerbunds. Gosh, it's years since I've even heard or said that word. I remember that was my year ten formal. We all had cummerbunds.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> And so none of us could actually say what the word kamerbun, it was a real mouth, it was a mouthful. Yeah, <laughs> That's right. You
0: you are seriously one of the snappiest dress presenters that I've ever had the joy of introducing. Seriously, as a young man, did you always have an eye on image and presentation and what was the woke thing to be wearing?
2: Oh, great question. So, oh no, in fact, if you were to talk to my wife, so when we got married, the first thing that pretty much happened was she throughout like 80% of my wardrobe. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm a Wollongong boy. I grew up in like a steel city. So I was like, I used to, I, a good outfit was like go to YD, like when YD first, or Roger David, when Roger David was around, was like, <laughs> That was like, they were your good shirts. But yeah. most of it was like, I don't know, Lowe's probably, or Kmart. I So definitely not. So the, even the fact that you've asked that question, she would find sort of comical. Um, but yeah, I guess in the last few years, my, my personal brand I guess I've tried to look a bit sharp. One of the reasons for that is I started doing this young. So I was 22 when I started doing Mm. full-time corporate speaking. I guess firstly, it wasn't with corporates for the first couple of years, mainly it was with educators and school students. But then, as I started to do more and more corporates, I was still only at like 25. And I'm like, I'm in a room of CEOs and board directors. I've got to sort of look the part mm. here. So it helped that I've had no hair since I was about 23. So that was because <laughs> you sort of look a little bit older. um And so I always wanted to sort of strike that balance of being um fresh and professional, but then at the same time, owning the fact that I am the age I am, but just having the credibility piece sort of lined up. So I guess that's part of why I do it. And also, I just I don't know, I like, I like nook looking. Looking the part, so I'd, it feels like it works for the brand and the space I'm in, mean, which is all about the future and being cutting edge. So I don't know, being sloppy just sort of doesn't feel like it's on brand. Whether that's right or not, I'm not right. No, I'm not sure. But that's sort of that's the thinking behind it
1: at 22, you got involved into this market research uh, kind of game and started the next gen group. So yeah. what drove you and what into that space? Because it's it's not something that a 22-year-old would typically want to go into, I would think.
2: No, it's pretty odd, isn't it? So um, I guess my my foray into speaking, it didn't begin when I was younger, but it, the, the seed of the idea was planted when I was really young. So um, like when I was eight, I vividly remember the day I wanted to be a speaker when i grew up which is so strange and i get Mm. how old that is so my parents were at a work conference and all of my brothers and i had to tag along because the babysitter fell through and so we were sitting at the back of this conference room at festival hall in melbourne in fact and there was a speaker on the platform named florence Litauer who was speaking about personality styles and she had this room of like three thousand business people like just enraptured and i'm like that's awesome, like just to see that skill in action as a young kid, I'm like, that's, I was just mesmerized and I thought, that's what I want to do. So it was always on my radar to be like, how do you even get into that world? I just was fascinated by great communicators. And so when I finished university, I did a commerce degree at uni, then I started, I got into a marketing role for a software company, and I was like, I was still on the radar, how do you do that? And I met a few people who were doing it full time, people like Lisa McGinnis Smith, um, David Penglase, these people had just been on the circuit for years and they gave me a bit of mentoring. and. It all just sort of took off from there but in my my foray into doing this was all around looking at generational change because as a young punk i was only 22 i was seeing the whole baby boomer versus gen y thing play out and there weren't many people in that space talking about it from a gen wise perspective i'm like there's a real opportunity here to speak into this issue as a young person and try and build bridges basically
1: why market research you said that you know you had this fascination of, you could see the trends happening but to get yep. into that space at that age so how did you actually start that i mean where do you start from
2: yes yeah, so the, the starting point was actually so i i could see the whole generational thing even in the workplace that i was in at the time you know the baby boomer, gen x gen y that the tensions that were happening there and i thought this is really interesting is this just something that's always gone on for millennia, like the generation gap ain't anything new, but is it wider than ever before and then why? And so I guess what's always fascinated me is, and really I probably should have done sociology, or maybe psychology at uni. I'm always curious about what makes things and people tick and trying to look at broad patterns and try and make sense out of what can often feel like just random complexity. And so trying to identify trends has always just been something I've been intrinsically wired to do, I think, just trying to see what's actually going on here and what's the what's the trend behind the pattern. And so that's where I started out initially. And Um, So, I mean, the backstory, I don't know, this is like a, this is a personal thing. Like we should talk as real people, not just all like professional stuff. So hang um,
0: on a sec there for Michael, Uh, listen, please stop listening now and go ahead, Michael.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So here's here's the backstory. So I'd I'd done all this research into generational change and thought this is a really interesting topic. You know, you had Peter Sheehan who was talking about that theme a bit. You had Mm. uh, Bernard Salt, Mark McCrindle, but I felt like there was a real opportunity to speak into that from a slightly different angle. I'd written what was the first draft of a manuscript and gave it to my dad who'd been a careers advisor in high schools Mm -hmm. and he read this on like on a weekend and said this is really interesting the gap here is to come into schools and help young kids understand older generations because they're going to work for one probably pretty soon when they leave school helping them understand older generations would be that'd be really valuable in schools and so that was the genesis of the idea and this is where i mean like speak really candidly so a lot lot of people don't know this story so my dad read that book he sent an intro email to the head of the careers advisors association saying hey this is my son he wants to do some stuff in schools and um this is sort of sad and heavy but it's just true he passed away like four days later like heart attack out of nowhere it was like the most like incredible tragedy just like a complete shock and so like after all the funeral, all the rest of it, like, you know, you sort of try and pick up the pieces and anyone who's listened, has gone through that, knows what that's like. And I sort of found this email, which was the last email I got from him was him, intro, intro, meted this woman named Lynn Camp at the Queers Advisors Association. That's all I had to work with. So I picked up the phone and rang her. And I think out of pity and mm. sort of grief, cause she'd known dad really well as well. She said, look, I'm happy to help you get started let's get you in front of a few careers advisors and so she was a real gift she sort of helped me get in front of the right people and then it all just started slowly and organically and so i had this within i don't know 18 months had this thriving business running programs in high schools all from that like seed of an idea so that's like that's how practically it came about and so there's a lot to it that i guess part of what i do maybe is it like almost that sense of a legacy like building on Mm. what I was given, so I, I do feel like it's a bit of a calling, what I do, I love what I do. And you know, over the years, I've been doing this 18 years now, it's a long time, um, My the scope has broadened from generational change to sort of sociological change, technology change is the big thing that lasted a while, you know, consumer trends, it's all sort of morphed and evolved over the years, but the core thread has always been to try and identify patterns in randomness and make complex things simple, so that people and audiences and business know what to do with the stuff that's happening to them and around them that's that's what really fires me up it's just the focus of that's shifted over the years
0: thanks michael for that honesty in that uh, in that trigger that set you on that path you have been doing that and you do it with such passion from the stage it's infective on your website you quote resisting change is a little like trying to hold your breath <laughs> and if even if you are successful it's not going to end well yeah before i i there's three challenges that i want to put to you in a, in a moment but can you yeah. talk to that quote first
2: yeah, so that quote is old, So that's 2,600 years old, that quote. Sorry, that's I've got
0: that. dial-up internet, that's probably why
2: uh, <laughs> I, I got that as I did, but go on. Yeah, so it's 2,600 years old, that's how old it is. So Lao Tzu was the man who said that um, in, his, in his native dialect all that time ago, and I think that it's never been more true, hey, like the reality is there's so much changing right now, there is this instinct for a lot of people to just be like, it's all too much, it's all too hard, I'm just going to ignore it or I'm going to fight the change, um and that never goes well i mean it's just that idea of mm. trying to hold your breath and so this idea of, and you've we've seen scores of businesses over the last 10 to 15 years do that in one way or another and so big part of my research is to look at why why do people resist changing even when they know they should and even when they want to like what is it that causes people to be stubborn in the face of change um so part of us looking at like what are the causal factors that cause an industry or a business or a leader to not change but then how do you also change once you are ready, if you are willing to do so, what does it take to stay one step ahead of change?
0: said I, I, I hear a, a new keynote being developed as you speak. Can you give us a little teaser, a little taster? What, what's the biggest uh, impediment to change?
2: I think, I mean, there's, gosh, there's so many. I think the big one is that for most of us, we've arrived at points of certainty about what we believe about ourselves and the world. And we've arrived there completely unconsciously. We don't even know how we got to the point of arriving at that point of decision. And therefore, we dig our heels in. And the challenge then, if you wanna change people, is the more evidence and logic you give, the less impact it has. In fact, you know, that the backfire effect is this well-studied phenomenon. The more evidence and logic you give, the more people dig their heels in because now their convictions become attached to their identity. And once you challenge some, someone's identity, they'll stop at nothing to avoid changing so the focus of the next book is really how do you circumvent that and that's been the last 18 years is trying to figure out ways to get around people's natural often ego driven defense mechanisms so they can see what they need to do to change and also you know feel willing and able to do that without a loss of dignity or power or certainty those are the things that are really tricky and they i think for any organization that's had success you know a term i often use is like the intoxication of success you know once you've done something for a long while and it's worked it's very easy to assume that it's going to work that way forever and to, to challenge what's worked in the past is just, you know, if it's not broken, don't try and fix it is the mm. mentality. It's so, like, well, It may still be working now, but if you look at just how much change lies ahead, you can't just get stuck doing what's worked in the past or even what's currently working. How do you future-proof yourself and your business? And that's always been my focus. What's just coming over the horizon we need to gear up for right now.
1: You've convinced me I need to change. How then do I identify the changes that I should be aware of and the ones that are going to be relevant to either me as an individual or the organisation I work for? I think some of them are going to be internal ones and some of them
2: are going to be external changes. So the internal ones will be looking at how the dynamics of your organisation are shifting and and evolving or also your industry. And a lot of my time with clients is helping them sort of step outside their day-to-day because, hey, most of us, all of us, really get so focused, so close to what we do, we can't see the things that are just outside of our frame of reference because we're so busy. And so often I'll come into an industry and see things that are happening within the industry that people go, gosh, I hadn't even connected those dots. I didn't even realize that was happening. But now that you say it, I'm like, yeah, I can see that's going on. So there's sort of internal things and there's the external stuff. What's happening in the marketplace? What's happening with technology or regulatory change? The things that you know, a sort of coalescing is a bit of a perfect storm that you need to get ready for now. And so, a lot of my work is trying to figure out what those trends are. And I I use a metaphor um, when I'm working with clients around this theme of you know the difference between tides and waves. And so, a, a wave is like those fads that come and go. And you know, waves, like a wave of the beach is loud and exciting, but it crashes ashore, but then it retreats and it doesn't leave a mark, a permanent mark. And we've got to be so careful not to jump at shadows and every latest fad that's come along because it's so tem- tempting to go, this is going to be the next big thing. And then 12 months later, like, where'd the thing ever get to? It was a wave. And so we can't react to every wave. But at the same time, the tides, by their nature, are silent and slower moving. Um, they're easy to miss if you don't know where to look. But over time, a change in tide will reshape the whole coastline. And so what are those tidal trends that we can't afford to ignore or resist? And that's always my focus is trying to figure out that stuff, whether it's generational with Gen Z or Gen Alpha now, or whether it's technological or sort of market changes, um, changes in consumer expectations. These are all the things we've really got to keep front of mind.
0: Fantastic. You've got a very thorough website, michaelmcqueen.net, and it's very clear about your various keynotes and so forth. So I want to throw four at you and I don't want to hear your keynotes with respect, but I'd just like to get our listeners a chance to hear your top of mind, a 30 second kind of response to these four big things. And they're all kind of hot topics of the moment. We're having this conversation fairly soon after a couple of major organisations had some huge data breaches, which has really thrown trust out the window. You mentioned before your own focus on your own brand. These brands are suffering. How does a brand bounce back?
2: Yeah. And it's so tricky. There is a, a school of thought that when you get to a point like where, say, and we could name the brands, but there's no point really doing so. We know the brands. And, and, and don't, we,
0: we needn't do it because by the time someone's listening to this, is probably Correct. another couple. Yeah. There'll
2: be another few that come out. There is a point where your brand is so damaged, you need to actually completely overhaul it. And there was some interesting commentary I was reading last week in a marketing um, academic journal about the fact that a few of these brands that have had massive data breaches, it's it's such significant damage to their brand and their reputation and trust that so they may need to rebrand. That is in extreme circumstances. In most instances, the path back to trust, firstly, you've got to earn it gradually over time, and that's about being consistent and credible. And so people will give you a chance, but you better make sure every experience they have from this point forward is exactly what you've promised. Um, I think the other thing too is just being honest, being as as upfront and transparent as possible. And Mm. there are plenty of brands over the years that have had these crises where they've stuffed up or things have gone wrong. The more they own them, right out of the gate, and they're upfront, they're on the front foot, they tell you what they did wrong before you find out. That's, that's the path to winning trust because it's self-deprecating and, it, and it's, it's just a degree of honesty, transparency, authenticity that resonates with people.
0: Again, we're having this conversation soon after 8 billion people ticked over in the world. Yep. Looking forward, put your forward-looking hat on. What are the biggest repercussions of population growth and where do you see that having a biggest impact?
2: Oh, wow. So a whole lot of implications of this. Generationally, it's massive. The country about to take over China in terms of the most populous nation is India, where you've got a huge percentage of the population who are Gen Zs, a massively young skewing population. And so the impact of that in terms of consumption and the way a whole generation thinks was a great piece I read yesterday in in like a McKinsey newsletter about how Gen Z in India... Are approaching everything like from sustainability to technology to relationships and that that's a really significant one. So demographics are going to be a big one. The issue around sustainability broadly, you know, as the population grows, how many planets of resources do we need to make society function and work? So that's going to be massive, but also just the technology piece. You know, with a world that is increasingly complex and interconnected, how do we use tech that makes us more connected as opposed to more isolated. And a lot of the work I've done in the last few months is around the metaverse. It's just interesting in terms of how can immersive VR actually help us come together and build empathy in ways that you can't do on a Zoom call or a Teams call. And I think that's the sort of stuff we're going to see really come to the fore over the next few years.
0: With the research you're doing in this area, particularly about human population and and I would say overpopulation, what's your degree of positivity about this? Are you optimistic about the future when it comes to populations? And and yes, a great uh, population number in India, but there's a lot of poor there.
2: Yeah, I think generally I'm pretty optimistic only because I just think human beings are incredibly adaptable. And we're adaptable in the face particularly of crisis, moments of crisis or transition. And and we've seen that, hey, in the last few years, necessity is a mother of invention for a really good reason. So I think some of the very issues that are pronounced right now, particularly environmental and poverty-focused issues, as they become more pronounced in the coming few years, I think we're gonna get really clever at finding solutions because it's just what humans do. My concern, the thing that makes me go, oh, I'm, I'm optimistic, but the thing that makes me less optimistic is we will only react well if we're dealing with good information. And the whole concern around misinformation, polarization, this is a big part of the research I've done around stubbornness, why are we more stubborn? Because we're increasingly making up our minds based on ideology. And ideology is often fueled by that echo chamber effect, where we only hear what we already agree with. And I think that's the thing that makes me nervous is we've got to, as a population, as a humanity, we've got to come together around what is actual truth and what is not. And at the moment, we've, we're in this era of fake news. That is the trickiest, that's the biggest threat to democracy and the threat to stable societies is everyone's got their own personal view of what truth is. That's the thing that just makes me a little bit nervous in terms of what, what lies ahead for the world. My
0: last question before we get just down to the final nitty gritties is what's the sexiest thing you've seen on the horizon? I'm thinking of years back, back to the future, the hoverboard. Yeah. What's the thing that's going to, we're all going to go, wow, I want one of those?
2: Oh, that is, it's hard because there's so many I could point to, but one that I found interesting actually preparing for this event for the public transport mob up in Brisbane was what we're seeing happen with air taxis. So actually Brisbane is looking to launch Australia's first air taxi service. These are basically like the Jetsons flying cars, basically. They want to have this up and running in the next few years to be ready in time for the Olympics. And we're seeing a company called Joby, J-O-B-Y looking to launch the same sort of thing in air taxi service in South Korea in early 2024. How does it work? What what happens? So these are piloted initially, these are piloted vehicles where they can take up to three or four passengers and they go from one point to another. Typically, they'll convert rooftops of buildings into the Skyport, which will be essentially an airport with a drone, the large passenger drone lands. Aren't these helicopters? Don't these already exist? No, they're a bit different. They're called VTOL, so VTOLs, so Vertical Takeoff and Landing Vehicles, so they're a little bit different. They take off vertically and they fly like a normal plane, Um, but they're a smaller model. And so we've seen, in fact, American Airlines and United Airlines have just spent billions um, investing in these to get passengers to airports and city hubs. So this is going to be a really interesting one to watch in terms of how our cities function and what it means for regional hubs. I mean, you take Melbourne or Sydney, for instance, this changes the game for living, let's say, in Geelong or living in Richmond in Sydney or living in Liverpool, where if, if you can commute to an airport or to a CBD hub area and your commute time is 20% of what it would be in a car or on a train or a bus, that, that's game changing. And so that's one that I've been tracking in the last little while. And it's that's just good. fascinating. That's
0: good. Will you promise the when Brisbane opens with it, you get us a, a ticket for Carson and myself to join you?
2: yeah i want to go on it too i can be fascinating how fun would
0: that be last question in the time we have michael a pco is listening to this and they're going this is fantastic my god he covers every subject under the earth and yet to be even thought of clearly you offer more than a keynote to a conference,
2: yeah. So keynotes that. are the main thing; they really are. I mean, I do probably eighty percent of my stuff is keynotes. I do a few half-day programs, sometimes full-day programs. I'm not the like multi-day training program guy. I just don't necessarily think that's my skill set. I'm pretty good at being a catalyst for change. Great for opening a conference, or in that like low-energy part after lunch to get people sort of leaning in, going, "Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that." You know, so mm. um, that's typically me. Is mostly it is conference keynotes. And then there's like there's books and there's online courses, all all the stuff that every speaker does. But yeah, for me, I'm pretty, I'm like sort of old
1: school keynote speaker. That is the majority of what I do, and I love it, absolutely love it. So given that, Michael, I noted on your website, you have quite a number of keynotes. What is there been a key, is the keynote that stands out right now or is a keynote that has um, always been the more popular one? I know your keynotes evolved. Yeah.
2: But... Yeah, well, so I, I'm in transition at the moment. So the te- keynote in the last two years, it's been really relevant. It was tied to the book that the first edition came out 2021. A new edition came out this year, which was like double the size of the first edition. That that book called The New Now, that was all about what COVID has sped up. You know, what are the trends that will shape the next few years? That's super relevant still. My my gut feel is in the next few months, I don't think anyone's going to want to even hear about COVID, even like post-COVID world. People are like, let's just move on entirely. And so I think the focus for me is actually to return to the keynote topic that was my most popular one pre-COVID, which was preparing now for what's next. What I'm doing is actually revisiting that and completely updating it now in terms of what's coming next because of this great acceleration we've seen with COVID, but without referencing COVID, you know, just the reality is, if we look at the next three to five years, what's coming and how do we make sure we're ready for it? So preparing now for what's next would probably be 70% of my keynotes right now. That's the topic that people are gravitating towards.
0: Fantastic. And quite understandably, you describe yourself as an old-fashioned keynote speaker. That's because there's nothing better than being in the room with someone who's got stuff to tell you, and you listen to it, and you take it in. And I've had the honor of introducing you on stage more than once. And I may have said it the first time I saw you, I describe you as an iceberg speaker in the sense that we've only seen one-seventh of the knowledge that you've done. Um, and so on behalf of the people who have listened to you, thank you for being up in the crow's nest to see what lies ahead for us to either avoid or to embrace or certainly just to deal with, because as the quote we mentioned before, you're mad if you don't acknowledge that change is there. All the best to you, Michael. Thanks so much for your time today.
1: You know, it's my pleasure. Appreciate it. If you want to find out more about the title trends coming our way and to book Michael McQueen to speak at your next event, please go to michaelmcqueen.net.
0: You've been listening to Carson White from Leading Voice and your MC Michael Pope, with Our Next Guest Is. More guests can be found through iTunes or just visit www.ournextguestis.com.au. But until next time, let's take a break.